Is China different? Does secular stagnation apply? How have Chinese policymakers changed over time? Should industrial policy be a thing? What should American academia do to navigate its relationship with China? To discuss, China Talk welcomes its first former cabinet secretary to the show. Larry Summers is a professor at Harvard, previously served as Clinton Secretary of the Treasury and Obama's National Economic Director. Co-hosting with me today is Logan Wright, Director for China Markets Research at Rhodium. Dr. Summers, welcome to China Talk. Glad to be with you. Is there a historical bureaucracy you'd really like to be like a fly on the wall for or have worked in? Like to have seen what it was like when the Marshall Plan was being conceived and implemented, because I think that was the most profound success of economic foreign policy that the world has ever seen. I'd have liked to have been on, been a fly in the wall in the early years of Chinese economic reform planning after Deng Xiaoping took effective power in 1979. I'd have liked from a very different perspective to have been present in the foreign ministries of Europe in the 39 days before World War One so that I could better learn the negative lessons that were to be learned from that experience. So let's stick with uh, Chinese economic policymaking. How has your estimation of Chinese policymaking changed over the past, I don't know, start, start the clock at dung maybe? I think for better or for worse, and it's some combination, uh, China has become less receptive to Western influence. I think the China of the 1990s was a China that believed that a great deal of economic wisdom was present in the West, believed in the remarkable power of markets, was more open to the idea that free societies and free markets were things that went together. And I think that three things have probably contributed to some substantial loss of admiration for Western economic practices or respect for the American capitalist example. I think that it's always the case that as as young people succeed and gain strength, they become more determined to set their own path rather than to follow the path of those who've gone before. And as Chinese incomes increased manyfold between 19, 1995 and 2000, between 1990 and 2010, which those years, China became more confident in its ways. The second thing that happened was for those who thought the West had it figured out, the combination of 2009 financial crisis, the election of Donald Trump, the lack of success in initially containing COVID just gave less of a sense that this was a place to go to learn to how to architect uh, society. 
And I think the third thing is that the rising tension and sense of competition between the West and China inevitably led to an emphasis on, in China, on defining its own greatness in its own way. And so for all these reasons, I think Chinese economic policy making has become more distinctively Chinese and less an evolution towards models more like that of the United States or, or Europe. Yeah. I think also another piece of that has, I think, been a big change in thinking of a kind that I certainly did not foresee about the relationship between information technology and political openness. I was very given in the early 90s to remarking on the fact that during the 1980s, countries like the United States or Japan or the UK had many more telephones than televisions, perhaps three times as many tele telephones as television. But that in Russia, there were twice as many televisions as there were telephones. And that the explanation for that had to do with a preference for one-way communication over a two-way communication. And it was my belief during that period that some of the success, and I think it was success, of much derided Star Wars strategy came from the fact that delivering the kind of information technology that was open, that was necessary to compete was inconsistent with being a completely closed society in the way that Russia was. I think the ways in which information technology through things like social credit mechanisms, through things like the ability to monitor and manage social networks can be reinforcing of authoritarian models rather than undermining of authoritarian models was not something that I anticipated, but I think is probably important in understanding the current architecture of economic competition. There are lots of recently retired or, or current senior officials who've spent a month hanging out at HKS from the CCP. And I feel like the next generation are probably not going to have that on their resume, both because the CCP is more wary and maybe just wants to learn less from the West, as well as some challenges that are racking uh, American academia as they think about engaging with the Chinese government, mainlanders in general. How do you think that uh, American universities should think about navigating this relationship? I think it's a very profound question. In general, it was my view during the time I was president of Harvard that American universities did need to remember that they were, in a sense, institutional citizens of the United States. I was appalled by Harvard's policy, for example, on ROTC. I yield to no one in the strength of my conviction in uh, gay marriage. But I did not think it was appropriate for Harvard to refuse to be part of ROTC 
because it didn't like the policies of our elected officials in that realm. I was sympathetic to the idea that under certain circumstances, law enforcement to prevent terrorist incidents with appropriate search warrants could need to have access to academic records where many others were not. So I think it is reasonable to ask of American universities a concern with American interests. At the same time, I think we need to be very careful about the ways in which we limit interchange and interconnection. Two stories about American universities and former Soviet Union have always stayed with me. One is that there was a man named Alexander Yakovlev. He functioned as Gorbachev's ideological advisor, and it is widely believed, although I can't really know, that he was the progenitor of the terms perestroika and uh, glasnost. And when he was asked, where did this all come from? Where did you, a longtime party apparatchik, come forward with these concepts? He referred to the year he had spent in the late 1950s in the Columbia University Political Science Department and all that he had seen in the United States and how that had affected his thinking. And I thought to myself that whatever program paid for that, it worth worth more than Star Wars, a large amount of money and still been a worthwhile investment. The other story, which is closer to home for me, was some years ago, probably a decade, maybe not actually probably more than that, probably almost 20 years ago now, there was a Russian submarine that was sitting on the ocean floor that needed to be rescued and was which all aboard were going to perish unless it was rescued. And it was rescued. And the reason it was rescued was that Russian admirals who had attended a program bringing together naval officers from the U.S. and Soviet Union at the Kennedy School knew each other and had the personal rapport and the personal connection that enabled them to be in touch with each other and to make that rescue possible and increase, at least for a time, the extent of goodwill between countries. So I think it is appropriate, and I've certainly heard stories of influence activities by Chinese authorities in American universities that it seems to me we can't tolerate and need to be very attentive to. But I think we would make a serious mistake of the national interest if we were to seek to avoid American universities engaging with Chinese students and Chinese scholars. But I think it's entirely right that questions be asked. And I think when universities say that the idea of export controls is something that should be applied to companies, not to universities, as a matter of absolute principle, I don't actually think that's probably a tenable position. So I think there's scope for 
a lot of thinking within the American Academy about these questions. How did I get Larry Summers to come on China Talk? Well, he's a fan of the newsletter. If he likes it, I got a feeling you would as well. Please consider subscribing for free at chinatalk.substack.com. And if you're interested in supporting China Talk financially, please consider signing up for a recurring donation at glow.fm slash chinatalk. Now back to the show. Obviously, we're aware you've been heavily involved in the debate over U.S. economic conditions, but we wanted to ask uh, your thoughts about how those theories apply to China's economy as well. Can we start with secular stagnation? How does the secular stagnation argument apply, in your view, to to China's economy? Is it different from conditions in developed economies or are fundamentally the same forces at work? I think it's odd to apply the concept of secular stagnation in the form that I have talked about it to an economy that's grown more rapidly than almost any other economy in the world. On the other hand, I think the issues pointed up by the secular stagnation theory are very relevant uh, to China. What secular stagnation directs attention to is the question of how an economy absorbs saving. And in the American context, in the industrial world context, secular stagnation is basically a concern that private saving is excessive relative to the demand for private investment, even at very low interest rates. And as a consequence, you have very low interest rates, you have shortfalls in demand, you have a tendency to asset bubbles because those savings flow into existing assets. The way that has manifested itself in China over time which has an extraordinary savings rate, is pressure to absorb all of that saving. And that pressure to absorb saving as a central economic problem, which is what defines secular stagnation, has, I think, uh, defined two aspects of the Chinese experience over time. It has defined the enormous emphasis on public investment and infrastructure investment. It's basically the avoidance of secular stagnation that explains why in four years, in the decade of the teens, China laid more concrete than the United States did in the entirety of the 20th uh, century. So the first way in which secular stagnation theory explains Chinese performance is it points to those very high levels of public investment. It also explains the pattern of China's international accounts. One might normally expect that a country that had tremendous growth prospects, that was industrializing extremely rapidly, that was seeing vast labor exit from rural agriculture, would be a country that would be importing capital on a substantial scale. But the level of saving in China is so great that it actually has been exporting capital on uh, a substantial scale, particularly up until the last several years. And so that savings absorption problem is, I think, the key to understanding the mercantile tendency in Chinese policy. If there had been an open capital market, it might not have been mercantile policy, 
It might simply have been substantial capital outflows coupled with a relatively weak exchange rate. In the presence of capital outflow controls, it manifests itself in a mercantile approach directed at maintaining the level of demand. And so I think the logic of secular stagnation theory helps to explain two of the very striking characteristics of Chinese economic performance. I might just mention, finally, that in a way there's a resemblance between China in the first part of the 21st century and Britain at the end of the 19th century. In both cases, there were substantial pressures for saving that led to very substantial external investment. Some of the economics of the British Empire parallel some of the economics of Belton Road. And uh, interested in how you think about, in the context of, over the course of the pandemic, we've seen a huge expansion in China's uh, current account surplus, uh, with that surplus of savings over investment, a continuation of this mercantilist behavior with different stimulus efforts in China versus the developed versus the developed economies. Is this the persistence of that current account surplus a concern? How much of a concern should it be to developed economies, particularly the U.S., in the course of an attempt to create a more sustainable post-pandemic recovery? From a global point of view, saving absorption is a problem. That's why we live in most places, with the exception of the United States, right in this particular period in a rather deflationary era. That's why the world economy is currently defined by extraordinarily low real interest rates. From that point of view, the decision of China to focus less on the promotion of domestic demand and more on the promotion of exports to not take bold and dramatic steps to lift the share of consumption in GDP is, I think, problematic. To the extent that one believes that the liquidity trap, the zero lower bound, an extremely low neutral real interest rate, all of these are different words for a similar phenomena involving an excess of savings. To the extent that one sees them as serious issues, if China were reducing its level of domestic saving or doing more to channel that domestic saving into investment, those would be smaller problems in the global economy. At the same time, we've seen this dynamic where the Chinese financial system has been less efficient over time at intermediating savings into investment. So it's seemingly we could see different sorts of concerns. On the one hand, you have a financial system that's expanded very fast relative to the size of its economy overall, which could lead to financial spillovers if credit growth continued at that pace. And on the other hand, we have this idea that even if China did stimulate investment, it still might not necessarily reduce the current account surplus over time. Which of these concerns is probably the the bigger one for developed economies at this point, in your view? I'm not sure I 
completely share your indictment of the chapter of the Chinese financial system. The fact that China is a country with 25% of, if that, uh, U.S. per capita income at PPP and probably 18% at exchange rate measures. And yet it has cutting edge technology companies in as many areas as it does is attributed to the fact that the finance entrepreneurship ecosystem in China is doing something very valuable. The fact that China has been more successful in the field of software than Europe has is some kind of positive reflection of what's going on in China. And it's not my impression that all those investments are being made by the public sector. Many are being made by a flourishing venture capital industry. So I think one has to be careful in condemning everything in Chinese finance. As I do think that it's probably the case that there are many continuing instances of financial repression in China, and that that does lead to a fair amount of investment channeled into relatively efficient uses that may catch up with China at some point. That's one of the suspicions I have as to how the mean reversion that I've worried about with respect to China earlier will manifest itself. I wanted to ask you about the the paper you wrote on mean reversion about eight years ago with uh, Lant Pritchett. What I what we found interesting was the argument that you know continuity of growth should not really be the prevailing assumption. The more dominant characteristic in history was this reversion to the global mean growth rate. And in that context, are there still good arguments in your view why China's growth should deviate from the global mean growth rate? I suspect that a fair-minded Chinese observer could legitimately have a bit of an I told you so moment with respect to what we wrote, that Chinese growth has reverted towards a global mean less rapidly than we had supposed might be the case. I think we were always careful to frame our analysis as a statistical tendency rather than as an iron law. And I think the rather disappointing performance of India in the last few years, which was something we also predicted, means that as predictors, the relationships that Pritchard and I applauded maybe look maybe look a bit... Look, I think it's always been very hard to know about... Chinese growth. It's clear that there is enormous technological capacity, enormous entrepreneurial potential, enormous capacity for hard work in China. It's also clear that there are substantial demographic headwinds, that there are substantial environmental headwinds, that there are substantial issues of political economy. On the one hand, maintenance of loyalty to the Communist Party is seen as essential, and the selective dispensation of favors 
is the best known way that mankind has to maintain loyalty, whether it's Tammany Hall in turn of the century New York, or whether it's the Chinese Communist Party. On the other hand, corruption, which is very much like the selective dispensation of favors, is inimical to legitimacy, and the eradication of corruption was a very focal part of the early years of Premier Xi's rule. So I think it's very difficult to know. My own suspicion is that while it is hard to call the timing with precision, and while it may not apply to every every sector, in the same way that the Kennedy era's fears about Russia surpassing us look silly, and in the same way that the profound alarm around the time of the Bush-Clinton transition that the Cold War was over and Japan had won looks foolish today, I think that some of the more overheated views of China as an economic threat to the United States and some of the more dramatic projections of continued extraordinarily rapid Chinese growth look excessive. So is that take a financial crisis for the world to recorrect its assumptions about the future Chinese trajectory? What happens once the world realizes we're not in a sort of Japan 1980 scenario? I'm not sure what the answer to that is. I can imagine scenarios that have the character of changed assessments of the Soviet Union, where there was no discontinuous event, but there was gradual decay coupled with, there was exaggeration of initial success followed by decay of performance, followed by belated recognition, and there was no dramatic moment. Even in the case of Japan, there was the bursting of the Japanese bubble in, let's go back, in the case of Japan, people felt that the most bubbly market was Japan. The prevailing position that people who played in markets had, was short Japan, long the rest of the world. The 1987 crash happened, and Japan was more insulated from the crash than other countries. And its markets recovered more rapidly than other countries. But two years later, three years later, uh, two, two years later, the Japanese bubble burst. That was not just a financial event but was a sign of a kind of profound change in growth in prospects of Japan took years to be fully recognized. The Nikkei peaked in late 1989. The early Clinton administration at the beginning of 1993 was in high alarm about Japan and took it just about as a given that the Japanese productivity growth rate would significantly exceed the American productivity growth rate. I think these things are likely uh, to take time, and I would not expect some kind of seismic collapse in China that shook the world. I would 
expect that historians will look back and will find uh, the current view of Chinese economic prospects to have been overly benign in important respects. But let me say, I'm not, that's my best guess, but it's not a view I hold with anything like complete confidence. And the degree of Chinese strength, variety of cutting edge technologies in particular gives me some pause in making these judgments. Let's close with a round of overrated, underrated state-owned enterprises. Underrated in many cases. Why so? Some of them are actually state-of-the-art, successful, entrepreneurial in funding, in funding venture, in funding venture, venture capital. And there's a tendency to see them in a bit overly ideological terms in the West. America pursuing industrial policy in the 2020s. Currently, excessively in fashion. We're not going to be able to do it very well. In many cases, the objectives are unattainable. Trying to raise in a large-scale way the fraction of American workers who work doing production work in manufacturing is futile for the same fundamental reason that trying to raise the fraction of people who work on farms is uh, futile. There's tremendous productivity increase coupled with uh, relatively inelastic demand. Using China as your main way to drive, to politically drive uh, domestic regulation. Overrated, declaring enmities can too easily become a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm comfortable with advocacy that suggests that we're very much engaged in a global struggle where the power of our example is going to be essential but where it is suggested that we need to pursue certain kinds of domestic policies in order to confront an adversary, I worry about internationally polarizing consequences of that approach. Wolf warrior diplomacy. I think it's a grave problem. I think that for those of us who believe that the major problems of the 21st century are issues like climate change, I believe, of equal significance, global health and pandemic risk. For those of us who see those challenges as central and see being able to cooperate with China as central in meeting them and would like to see our relationship with China more oriented to cooperation on those issues than on ideological point scoring having to do with political issues. Wolf warrior diplomacy, because of the outrageous things that are said, makes fostering cooperation much more difficult. So I think it's very pernicious. And we got a big one to close. America's political system. I think it's underrated. I think that the lesson of American history is a lesson of self-denying prophecy, that John Kennedy believed that Russia would surpass us, that it was generally believed that we were suffering a malaise, that our constitution might need to be amended at the end of the Carter administration, 
that many believed and suggested that Roosevelt needed to take dictatorial powers in 1932, that in 1792, Patrick Henry said that the spirit of the revolution had already been lost. And I think the great narrative of American history is the American people and their leaders' capacity for alarm, and for that alarm to lead to uh, renewal and rejuvenation. And that's what I think is the process that's being set in motion right now. So I am ultimately an optimist about the United States. I believe Winston Churchill did not actually say what is often attributed to him, but I do believe the statement is correct, that America tends to do the right thing, but only after exhausting the alternative. And I think in many areas, people will look back at this moment, and that's what they'll say. One last one, because I can't help myself. What are your biggest outstanding analytical questions about China you'd love to learn more about or read something about or try to get answered? I'd like to understand the questions around the demographic changes that China is going through, both the obvious in terms of a declining labor force, but I think the less obvious in terms of the consequences of rural to urban migration of those who can be productive in urban areas being largely exhausted. I'd like to understand better than I do how China has nurtured a cutting-edge set of of venture-type companies, despite being a a relatively poor uh, country. I'd like to understand better the questions of uh, transition of power and the possibilities of wrenching change from the current system in China. History tells me that protracted continuity for 50 years is unlikely, but I don't have a good feeling for the likely discontinuity. And I'd like to understand better the attitudes of ordinary Chinese people towards the United States and towards the rest of the world. Because I think it is a mistake to assume that authoritarian states are not responsive to the popular will. Often authoritarians who lack the legitimacy of democratic election have even more need to cater to the popular will in order to maintain power. So understanding the Weltenschwan of Chinese citizens towards the rest of the world seems to be profound. I guess I have the agenda for the second half of 2021 China Talk episodes. Larry Summers, thank you so much for being a part of China Talk. Thank you, guys.
当我们出现在全都市的酒吧里。VIP 的身份证明我们有差异，我感到超跑一般人不能够驾驭。绿色都华丽，的衣服是奢侈品，蓝色欧洲巴黎。别来跟我攀比，不然你会受打击。我出门是大晴天，你出门就下雨。给我闭嘴，没人打你是哑巴。我身边的妹都穿的巴黎西亚哥，因为他推荐外表是我的爱好，在美的街道都贴满了我们巡回演出的炫的海报。还有谁能跟我们对立吗？毫不费力吧。下面了，像龙珠里的贝吉塔，我站在上面把你们都压在最底上，还有什么麻烦随便来，我陪你爽。我看到了胜利的女人就在面前对着我们挥手，穿满了辉煌的中国的历史上也都在抽油。武林的坚定，就算很坚定，就算有很多人对我发出了质疑，我不能忍受，我不能忍受。